powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks of BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service. It's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, the granddaughter of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, an author of the book, Your Heroes, My Grandparents, A Granddaughter's Love, Julie Rogers Pamelia. What a great guest and a real trooper for coming on the show. If you have not heard our in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 177, and we have a very special episode for you today. It is with great pride and it is with tremendous honor to introduce my guest. We have on the show U.S. Navy retired commander Kirk Lepold. He was the commanding officer of USS Cole when it was attacked by al-Qaeda in Yemen in 2000. Commander Lepold will tell the story of incredible bravery of the crew as they fought to save the ship and their own lives, and he will talk about the political fallout, his post-Navy career, his latest book, which is Frontrunner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole, and so much more. Now, securing an interview with Commander Lepold was a real get for the show, so I hope you enjoy this interview as much as this old salty sailor enjoyed talking to another salty sailor. Let's get him out here, Duval Nation. Please join me in welcoming to the show, calling in today from his home in Washington, D.C., the former commanding officer of USS Cole, retired U.S. Navy Commander Kirk Lepold. Hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Weather is great. I mean, we've had a little bit of rain that's moved through the uh, Washington, D.C. area, but Nothing of real significance, so life's good. Nice. With the pandemic now coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, for me, the COVID-19 world, obviously, I took a, uh, a huge hit as far as being able to get out into the public. When I made the decision to not go in the defense industry when I retired in June 2007, I decided to get into the world of inspirational leadership speaking, and I went with a fantastic Speakers Bureau, Kepler Speakers here in the Arlington, Virginia area, and was doing great. But when the COVID hit, you can't get together. And if you can't get together, you don't hold conventions. And if you don't hold conventions, you don't need keynote speakers. So I immediately had to take a reset and say, okay, given that you're going to be isolated, how do you pivot to success? And what I ended up doing was literally saying, you have to figure out a way to show your 
PowerPoint slides as background and give your speech in an online format, which meant engaging in a whole new way. And I think it's a reality is that everybody had to learn how to do business differently, how to communicate differently, how to motivate, motivate your people differently. And for me, it was how do I connect with people differently and through the lens of that small camera out there where you learn to have total eye contact the entire time, but at the same time, shift the slides. And I found out that I absolutely loved it, used it to great success in 2020, 2021. And then, of course, by 22, the world started to pick back up. And now we're almost back to normal, I'd say. Nice. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? What was it like to grow up there? Well, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, up in the avenues by LDS Hospital. Then when I was about six years old, we moved to a little area called Olympus Cove. And at the age of 11, my dad got a job with the Nevada State Prison System as their first psychologist. All three state prisons at the time were located in Carson City, Max Medium, and the Women's Prison. So we picked up, moved to Carson City, and that's where I say I really grew up. And, you know, like any kid before you're about 10 years old, you can go just about anywhere and you can adapt and adjust and make new friends. But that's where I stayed till I was 18 when I was accepted with an appointment to the Naval Academy. And off I went. And the only thing that was different is coming from the high desert of Carson City, which is about 450 miles north of Las Vegas, but about 30 minutes from Lake Tahoe. I walked off the airplane in Washington, reached out and said, what's this? humidity stuff <laughs> and so began my introduction to what it would be like to live in navy ports for the next 26 years mm, makes sense so with many other veterans who've come on my show they all come from a military tradition background did you have a kind of a military background in terms of your family virtually none that i knew of i had really? a great grandfather who fought in the trenches for germany in world war one survived dramatically affected by it but no other military on either side of the family going back. So I was really the first one that stepped into that and or began that journey. So why the Naval Academy or the other branches of the U.S. military? Well, that's interesting. I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy because I had family that lived in Colorado Springs, which would have been a gr great support infrastructure there. But I had appointments to West Point and to Annapolis and the... The Navy Blue and Gold officer got to me first, and he said, look, if you want to go play Army, we have this thing called the Marines. You can have a great time with them, but you just have to remember, if you join the Army, no matter where you go or what you do, your home is where you dig it. And so I decided, nope, I'm going to go in the Navy, and that's how the journey began. Nice. So what are your favorite memories from your time at Annapolis? My favorite was the opportunity to try so many new things, whether it was sports, whether it was extracurricular activities. I tried every single type of sport that I possibly could. I did boxing. I did handball. I did squash. I did racquetball. I did tennis. I did football. I extracurricular activities. I was with the military parachute club there. So that's where I got my initial jump wings, was at the Naval Academy, got my gold wings there. I was also active in some of the other, you know, activities on base with the debate and others. So it, it was really a wonderful time because it just gives you that opportunity as college should be. You're away from home. You're away from those influences. You're learning to be an adult and you're finding out what's really out there in the world for me to learn about, discover, explore 
so that you can begin to start making life decisions from that point. And, you know, of course, the Naval Academy gives you that unique background where they instill in you a sense of honor and integrity and the importance of building your character, which is going to last your entire life. Mm. What do you remember about your first time arriving to the fleet? First time is I was so excited to get to my first ship that when I graduated from the division officer course up in Newport, Rhode Island, I drove down on the 3rd of December, spent the night in Philadelphia where the ship was dry docked, and I reported aboard the next morning. Really? What no ship was it? It was USS Fairfax County. It was a tank landing ship, not in the old World War II style, but the new ones with the big derrick arms out front. Mm -hmm. And I was assigned to engineering department as the main propulsion assistant. And that was, I was in seventh heaven because to be honest, I struggled, I struggled academically almost seeing my entire time at the Naval Academy. As I like to put it politely, I, I graduated, but I graduated in the top 90% of my class. And what it really was, was a matter of maturity and focus. It wasn't a matter of brains, as I would discover years later when I went to the Navy postgraduate school to get my master's degree. But the one thing that going through something like that that challenges you mentally like that is I learned the importance of the word perseverance. And I persevered through the Naval Academy. So when I arrived out in the fleet, I was ready to go to work. And that's exactly what I did. I put my nose down. I went to work. And I did whatever hours it was going to take to be successful as an officer, given a division of about 30 men to be responsible for, given six engines, three generators. You know, I just embraced everything about being a division officer on a ship there was. What would you say your command style would be? It was one of those that I grew into. It was where you learn. Uh, I would say that, you know, I was no great leader. And as I gradually learned, you, you as an officer are best defined not by what you do, but what you enable the people that work for you to do in accomplishing the mission. It's how, how much space do you give them? And I, I look back on it now and something that I was kind of doing intuitively that I've gotten better at defining is leaders love to say, oh, I trust my people. And you hear them say that all the time. What they won't talk about is the flip side of that coin, that if you're going to trust your people and be a good leader, you better be willing to accept risk on their behalf for when things go right, but more importantly, for when things go wrong. And that if you want to come after someone, you talk to me first. You, it's one of those where I kind of took the attitude regarding the people that always work for me. Hey, you want to come pet my dog? No problem. You're going to kick my dog. You're going to go through me first and good luck. Hmm. Remember the skipper on my board, my boat said, and it's the lesson that I've applied to my civilian life as well is when I become a manager in any job I've been in, and it's basically never ask someone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. Absolutely. Go that, get your hands dirty. Now that, that you got to remember as a young ensign and an officer going out there and kind of getting a little oil and grease on your hands, yeah. the chiefs don't like that. They were old fashioned. <laughs> the officers don't belong in the hole, sir. Thank you very right. much. Please get out of our business. And I'm like, well, how do you expect me to learn the equipment, know what you're doing if I don't come down and occasionally work with the guys to see what's happening? Yeah. I'm not afraid of getting a little oil and grease 
on my uh, under my fingernails and learning what it's really like to you know to clean the inside of a diesel engine. Mm. How long did it take you to get your first command? Eighteen years, which is really? pretty typical. Um, in order, you know, you have to remember that a guided missile destroyer is a nowadays it's a over two billion dollar national asset, and I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how educated you may be, how well you're connected in life or in the Navy. At the end of the day, it takes 18 years of experience to get 18 years of experience. And the Navy invests a lot in making you making sure you're a top-notch division officer, department head, executive officer, and then they reward you with that command. Yes, there are those few that will go on and maybe get Patrol craft command when we used to have those as senior lieutenants making lieutenant commander, a minesweeper command as a lieutenant commander. But the reality is the vast majority of officers these days, they get their first taste of command at around somewhere between the 17 and a half to 18 and a half year point. Hmm. Were you ever interested in the uh, sub submarine fleet or are you just always interested in the service fleet? Well, it was one of those initially I wasn't smart enough for Admiral Rickover to even consider me going into the nuclear power program. And when the time came in the mid-1980s when they were looking for officers, by then I was kind of set. I, I knew the path I was on. I enjoyed surface warfare. I enjoyed chasing submarines much more than appearing in the crosshairs of them, which I knew we would occasionally. But that's where I really kind of said, no, I, I like what I'm doing. And I had also made the jump from that tank landing ship dealing with 1950s technology, really, to my second ship, which was USS Yorktown, the second of the Aegis cruisers in the fleet. And I really learned what the Navy is truly about because we deployed with the Saratoga Battle Group into the Mediterranean, and we did some phenomenal operations there. We did freedom of navigation operations, six miles off of Sevastopol, back when the big bad Soviet Union was there. Our ship was involved in the Achille Laro takedown, grabbing the hijackers that had killed Leon Klinghoffer and throwing his body off the uh, cruise ship. We were involved when the America and the Coral Sea battle groups came over. I was the force anti-air warfare coordinator managing all of the air assets over the entire Gulf of Sidra on a port and starboard watch. So managing all those things and seeing this is how the instruments of national power with the military are applied to secure our national security interests, how to safeguard those, really taught me what the Navy is about. It really brought that old sage for the Navy, Alfred Thayer Mahan, really to the fore in my mind as to the importance of why we need a Navy why it is so important to our country and why we need to invest in it certainly more than we're doing today. Hmm. I want to talk about USS Cole. You took command 1999 and no skipper can imagine that their boat would be subject to such an attack. You trained for it. You never imagined it can happen. What do you remember the morning of October 12, 2000? Morning of October 12, 2000, we had been ordered into the port of Aden, Yemen for a brief stop for fuel. We expected to be there for six to eight hours refueling the ship. We were in a pier out in the middle of the harbor. We had arrived early that morning. They kind of delayed things a little bit. We eventually went in, went, took a series of right-hand turns, went into the middle of the eastern side of the harbor, 
turned the ship around, moored at starboard side to the pier, got settled down around 9.30 in the morning. I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful, crystal clear blue morning. Temperatures were going to be up around 105 degrees. Humidity was 80, 85 percent. Once we shut down the four main engines, we had two generators running. We began the import refueling checklist, and everything was going absolutely normal for about 45 minutes. During that time, we had contracted through the logistics agent in the port to have two garbage barges, or excuse me, three garbage barges to come out to the ship. Two had come out, loaded up with trash, plastics, and hazmat, had left. What should have happened is they go dump trash, and one comes back out to play cleanup. What we didn't know that morning is that Al-Qaeda had been in that port for over a year watching when Navy ships pull in. We were the 27th ship to pull into that pier to refuel. And they brought a boat in that they packed with explosives. They had attempted an attack in January of 2000 that had failed. And that morning, that boat launched, came out toward us. Contrary to what you may have read in the press reports, it was not a Zodiac-style boat that raced across the harbor and rammed the side of the ship and detonated. It looked just like the other garbage barges. 24-foot long, center console, outboard motor, two guys in it, came out to the ship, slowed, turned by the bow, went by. A young sailor that was watching to make sure we didn't spill fuel, as it had gone by, it thought to himself, boy, something's just not right. When the explosion hit, he was peppered with shrapnel, survived. And when they interviewed him, what he had actually thought was, boy, that sure is awful clean for a garbage barge. It came to the middle of the ship, detonated in something the Navy had never anticipated, and we certainly hadn't even trained for. It was a waterborne improvised explosive device. But in that moment at 1118 in the morning on the 12th of October 2000, that 8,400 tons and 505 feet of fighting steel was violently shoved up into the right, we seemed to hang for a split second and then came back down in the water. We'd been lifted up an estimated six to eight feet. Power failed, lights went out, ceiling tiles popped out. And then I got up, stood in the door of my cabin, a gray cloud that smelled like dust, fuel, and the acrid tang of an explosive washed over me. I grabbed a nine millimeter, went out, and went to go defend my ship. How long did it take to get the flooding under, under control? The crew did an absolutely phenomenal job that morning. The announcing system for the ship was knocked out, the 1MC. The battery backup system failed. The backup announcing system failed. No one could tell the crew what had happened, where to go, what to do. They immediately fell back on the training, divided into one of three groups, damage control to save the ship, triage to save their shipmates, security to stop another attack. We had the ship stable from the flooding in just a touch over an hour. In triage, we would evacuate 33 wounded off the ship that day. We did it in 99 minutes. And of those 33, 32 would survive. How close were you to losing the ship? We were not close to losing the ship the first day. We were nowhere near our floodable length. The real danger actually occurred Saturday night going into Sunday morning. We had actually dewatered one of the spaces that had flooded, auxiliary machinery room number two. But at around 1.30 in the morning on Sunday, the space reflooded despite us having a number of pumps down there. We didn't know what had caused it. And I just call it the captain's gut intuition. I told the executive officer, get the crew up and put them at general quarters. And a little after 3 o'clock in the morning, the only operating generator quit. 
We had three chances to restart it with high pressure air. And over the next four hours, we would go through one, two, three shots. The generator didn't start. And now I'm in the worst condition possible. Hot, quiet, dark, and sinking in a form port with a hole in my side. As a matter of fact, it was so bad that the Joint Task Force Commander ashore notified Fifth Fleet, who notified the National Military Command Center, who called the White House Situation Room. They woke President Clinton up at 4.30 that morning and told him the ship's without power and sinking, and we don't think they're going to be able to save it. My crew, however, backed into that corner, said we're not going to give up. We actually went down into the one engine room, number two, that was flooding, but we were keeping it somewhat under control, and we cut two holes in the side of the ship to run a pump so we had both discharge and the exhaust going out from down in the engine room, and then God love sailor ingenuity. Hey, one of my sailors came to me and said, hey, you know the air packs that we use for firefighting? We've got two portable pumps. What if we put those portable pumps on the flight deck, ran the hoses down and jury rig fittings to charge the flask for the generator instead? And this was the sum conversation. Great idea. Go do it. That's all I told them. There was no safety brief. There was no how do we plan to do it. There was no who's going to be involved. Tell me what the detailed plan is going to be. Talk about trust and a time of risk. Here you go. And they hooked it up. It ran for 14 hours. And at five minutes after midnight Monday morning, we had two shots of air. And on the first one, we restarted the generator. And we essentially kept power on the ship for the remaining time for the whole 17 days we were in port. That's amazing. Now, I did some research, and I could not find an answer to this question. So I'm hoping you might be able to answer it. It's how many medals were conferred that day? We would end up conferring of a crew of 294 in which obviously 17 were sadly killed 37 were wounded uh those that were killed were posthumously awarded the medal of honor and combat action ribbon uh those that survived and were wounded got the purple heart combat action ribbon but we were also given a navy unit commendation as well so the entire crew got those and then there were individual medals given out for her acts of heroism in life-saving and damage control. And I believe those numbered somewhere around at the end of the day, there were a total of around 72 or 75 medals. I, I don't have the exact number. Fair enough. Now, I read the rules of engagement were changed that day to combat approaching potential threatening small craft. Am I correct on that? Uh, when we pulled in that morning, we pulled in under Chairman Joint Chiefs of Staff peacetime standing rules of engagement. It's a book about three quarters of an inch thick, classified secret no porn, which means you can't even share it with our allies. No supplementary measures authorized. So the only thing I could do under those conditions is something had to exhibit what they call hostile intent, aim a gun at me, or hostile act, shoot a gun at me. So once the blast went off and we knew we were under attack, I changed the rules of engagement by taking that book and saying, disregard it. ROE now is a simple three-step process. I had told the Yemeni port authorities, do not allow any boats within 100 meters of my port side or I will shoot you. And as boats came out, they stayed away. But I told my operations officer, if any boat comes inside that 100-meter arc, you warn it once with a bullhorn. If it keeps coming, you fire one warning shot. And if it keeps coming after that, you open up with everything you have because we can't afford to have another boat get alongside and detonate in case there was a follow-on attack. So the, the rules of engagement became a simple three-step process. 
From that point, even after the Marine Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team or FAST platoon arrived on Sunday morning, we still rotated them through watch stations for 24 hours so the Marines could get a good feel for the situational awareness and how things were coming and going in the port. And then we turned security over to those Marines, which was eventually taken over by the reinforced rifle company on USS Tarawa that arrived about a week after the blast. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with retired U.S. Navy Commander Kirk Lepold. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. What if I told you about a group of elite college athletes who compete in 35 different sports at one of the toughest institutions in the nation? For them, it's not about name, image, and licensing, or any other kind of major endorsement deal. Because at the end of the day, their ultimate goal is to serve their country. This is Carl Darden. I'm the host of Navy Sports Central, and I'm talking about the athletes who attend the United States Naval Academy. These young men and women represent the best our country has to offer. They compete at a high level on both the national and world stage, and their stories have mostly gone untold. I'm here to change all of that. So please, join me, Carl Darden, on Navy Sports Central, wherever you get your podcast to learn more about these incredible athletes and our nation's future leaders. Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours, too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. We're This is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all the streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, 
intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podcasting Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP, 600 Miles, on all streaming platforms right now. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed: A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 177 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the former commanding officer of USS Cole, retired U.S. Navy commander, Kirk Lepold. You continue to fight for compensation for the victims of the coal bombing. How far has that fight come now? Well, I think it's you're going to see it's going to be like anything else. While the families that were involved with that case won, and they've sued the government of Sudan for doing that, and they have been awarded uh, monies. There has been a longstanding executive branch policy through multiple administrations, both Republican and Democrat, that they believe that paying that kind of money out from a country's funds, regardless of how it is gotten, either legally or ill-begotten, that that they consider that to be interfering with the president's conduct of foreign policy. So consequently, they have always blocked those lawsuits, whether it's even 9-11, USS Cole, going back to the embassy bombings, going even further back to the Beirut barracks bombing. Mm -hmm. None of those lawsuits, even if they're won, have paid out. You were found not liable for the bombing, rightfully so, um, but there was fallout in Washington. What were your emotions and all of that? Well, you get to stand on the deck of a ship and get to say the three greatest words of a naval officer's career. I relieve you. And when you assume command, you assume command for everything that goes right and everything that goes wrong. 
And the only thing that I would look at long-term is that the Navy and specifically some senators chose to want to assign blame. And there's a fundamental difference between accountability, responsibility, and blame. If you want accountability, there is only one officer that morning that was the accountable officer, and that was me, okay? My ship, my crew, mine. I'm the accountable officer. And all you have to do is look at the results on how my crew before, performed before, during, and after the event. If you want responsibility for that suicide attack, well, I put that on a bearded guy that we hunted down to Abbottabad, Pakistan, shot in the face, stuffed in a body bag with 100 pounds of weight, and he's now sitting at the bottom of the ocean. If you want blame, that's two suicide bombers that came alongside my ship, detonated, and killed 17 of my sailors, wounded 37, and forever changed the lives of my entire crew and their families. So when a lot of people want to blame me for either creating the conditions or doing things, what they're politely trying to say is, you're no better than two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers. I'm going to push back. Yeah, and rightfully so. Uh, what led you to retire from the U.S. Navy? Well, anytime you serve in the military, it's never a job for life and eventually you retire. Uh, if you've served long enough, 20 years in those days, you got a retirement check and then you go find work that's fun, satisfying and hopefully pays the bills. And that's what I chose to do is uh, I looked at it and said, hey, you know, at the end of the day, I'd been selected for promotion to captain. I had languished for four and a half years waiting. Eventually, the Navy made the decision politically that they didn't want to deal with the fallout that might occur with Senator John Warner. So they permanently removed me off the list. They gave me an opportunity to go up for two more promotion boards. But like any good professional, you know, you can either choose the conditions under which you move along in life or you get told. And I chose at that point that rather than wait, I was going to retire. I retired on my terms under my conditions. And so I called it a day after 26 years in the Navy and uh, proudly retired at the Navy Memorial downtown Washington, D.C. and absolutely uh, remain proud of my service to this day. Do you keep in contact with any of the sailors from the coal? <laughs> I stay in touch with the sailors, my officers and chiefs, the families, all of them. As a matter of fact, you know, some of the families that I stay in touch with, uh, one of them that I'm most proud of is Seaman Sharon Gunn who was a signalman seaman up working in the bridge area, was unfortunately killed in the blast. And you want to talk about turning tragedy into triumph. His mother, just a couple of years ago, finished her one-year time as the president of the American Gold Star Mothers Association. Wow. So absolutely, I would see her every year at Rolling Thunder when we would ride. And uh, I was always honored to know Mona Gunn. Phenomenal, phenomenal woman. Now, I've had other military veterans on the show, and I've asked them all the same question. And if it's okay, I'd like to ask you this one as well. And as someone who has been affected by a terrorist attack, I am highly curious by your response. Uh, what were your emotions when you watched the fall of Afghanistan and the end of the war? Incredible disappointment. And I think the reason why is that we abandoned that country at a time when we should not have done that. So, uh, you know, I'm gonna, one of the things that I will say is that I believe we should have stayed engaged in Afghanistan. Afghanistan military was bearing the brunt of the fight at the time. 
when I witnessed the fall of Afghanistan occurring, the one thing that I was most disappointed in is that the United States was making a strategic error in investment in our future and our national security. I believe we should have stayed engaged in Afghanistan. I know you have a lot of people in the isolationist wing of the Republican Party and even some Democrats were beginning to doubt the mission, but we were slowly making inroads into Afghanistan. They were becoming that Democrat nation that we wanted them to be. It was taking time. For a year, the Afghan military had bore the brunt of the fight against the Taliban. The problem is multifold. First, multiple administrations going all the way back to President Bush, to President Obama, to President Trump, to President Biden, had failed to really address the root cause of some of the failures that we were seeing in Afghanistan. And that was that the Taliban was being given safe haven by the government of Pakistan, and we refused to hold Pakistan accountable. The second thing was, when you look at where Afghanistan sits strategically in the world, it's in what I call the arc of instability. It sits between China, Pakistan, and Iran. Being invested with boots on the ground in that area of the world is an investment in our security to know what's going on, especially since it is and, and is turning back into, unfortunately, a nexus for terrorism. I think that we were very short-sighted in getting out of there. You have to look. People say, well, what about you know Korea? You look at South Korea. Well, you have to remember that when we signed the armistice in 1953, South Korea did not become start on the path of becoming a democracy till 1973 when the Park regime was overthrown. We forget history. And I think that Afghanistan, in the long run, had we stayed invested, had we given that country the tools to beat back the Taliban and to make sure that we started applying pressure on Pakistan, their army and the ISI, the intelligence service in, in, in uh, service agency, we we would have been able to be victorious long-term in Afghanistan. I think we just pulled out too soon because Americans sometimes get very short-sighted. And I think that we're going to rue the day that we pulled out, and we're especially going to regret the manner in which President Biden pulled out. You wrote a book, Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole. What inspired you to write that book? I always felt that I owed the telling of the story of my crew's heroism to first the crew, their families, and then the American people. And for years and years, I kept putting it off. It was kind of funny right after the event, I'd have people sidle up and say, oh, you need to write a book, get on the speaking circuit, you make a million bucks. Well, that was never my motivation. And oh, by the way, unless you're someone like Marcus Luttrell with Lone Survivor, you don't make money writing a nonfiction book as a first time author. And I was reluctant to turn it over to someone else to write what I always viewed and jealously guarded as our story as a crew. But I also had to also come to the realization that I was no more willing to relive that event and put it onto paper in the immediate aftermath than fly to the moon. And it took me nine years before I finally took a deep breath and said, okay, talk's cheap. You told the crew you're gonna write the story set at a keyboard, let's get it written. And that's when I sat down from 2010 to 2011, wrote the story. It went through about a year of editing and it published in April of 2012 and has been very successful since then. I'd like to ask you what the feedback to the book's been like. 
Uh, you go on Amazon and it's top-notch, five-star ratings almost exclusively. You look at some of the other sites, military history sites. Uh, they say it is the most accurate and it, it is the most accurate accounting of what happened. It's the only book that's ever been written about it. And what I take great pride in is it's a combination of both an incredibly powerful story of what my crew accomplished in those dark days and hours in the immediate aftermath of the attack. But it's also, I've never been challenged on the historical accuracy of it. Every single piece that's in there, every quote is in there. Because when I sat down to do interviews, I put a tape recorder on the table, whether it was with the ambassador to Yemen, Barbara Bodine, whether it was with the Fifth Fleet Commander Willie Moore, or whether it was some of my sailors. And they all agreed to it because after that amount of time had passed, people realized I wasn't writing the book to grind an ax. I was writing a book to capture heroism and history. Now you teach at the U.S. Naval Academy, am I correct? Uh, I do, I'm just doing as a substitute teacher right now, substitute adjunct professor, teach a course for the youngsters or sophomores there that's called Ethics and Moral Reasoning for Naval Leaders. What, what exactly does that encompass? It's basically teaching them about the decision-making process you go through if you come on a decision where integrity's involved, where ethics may be involved, to make the right choices. Because what they're really, what we're really trying to do is teach them about that journey that they're going to make to build that piece of character so that if perchance, and sadly some will, run into that point like I did, that they know that the decisions they are going to make are going to be the right decisions for the right reasons, regardless of the consequences. Mm. Now, you mentioned earlier you do public speaking. What sort of lessons do you communicate to your audience? The biggest things I try to do is essentially take a lot of what I learned throughout my military career that was really punctuated by that event and try to teach them some of the real, you know, what we may think are common sense, but you kind of have to remind people that in business, leadership doesn't happen in the moment. First and foremost, it is an investment in yourself by practicing that art, by taking all the tools that can be in a person's kit bag. And you have to think about it. You have to practice those. They may eventually become second nature to a degree, but a good leader always should be reflecting back and thinking about how am I leading today? Am as I good as today or better than I was yesterday? If not, why not? And what can I do better? The first thing that I always start my speeches out is there's only one person in your life that is responsible for the decisions you make and the consequences that come from it. And that's you as an individual. Yet how many people do we have today in our society who always want to find blame? It was someone else. Nobody told me. I couldn't find it on the internet. You know, the re bottom line is, you are an adult. Make those decisions. These young men and women who raise their right hand and swear that oath, they do so of their own volition and are responsible for the consequences that may come from it up to and including the loss of their life. And they do it in gladly in the service of our nation. So I look at it and say, you need to be professionally competent. You need to have vision. You need to have that ability to communicate. You learn how to make decisions. And oh, by the way, since most people aren't politicians, guess what? Why do you change a decision? It's because you get better information and you can do things better. So change the decision. Even if it means you make a 180, 
So long as you explain to people why you're changing your decision and what's informing your decision, they'll generally buy off on it. They just want to know, hey, why did we change why, what we were doing? So those are the things I walked through. And all those things really came to the fore over the last three and a half years with COVID because our ability to come back as a nation, your ability to come back as an individual, especially through something as unpredictable and challenging as COVID was, demonstrates the incredible resiliency of the American people. It's a fair assessment. Have you ever thought about doing a TED Talk? Uh, I thought about it, but I've never done one. You should do it. It's. I think you have a great lesson to teach. Well, thank you. I'll take that up on consideration and we'll look into it. All right. So what is next for you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm still doing the uh, inspirational speaking. Uh, absolutely love doing it. I constantly get asked, when are you going to consider retirement? And I'm like, wait a minute. If you love what you do <laughs> and you can make a living off of doing it, um, yeah, travel can be a hassle at times, but I'll probably keep doing it for the rest of my life simply because I love telling the story. Uh, I love the opportunity to go over the, to the Naval Academy and teach. And even if I retire and move out of the Washington, D.C. area, uh, away from the Naval Academy, I will probably get plugged into an education system somewhere because a lot of young men and women need to hear not necessarily the story of the heroes of USS Cole, but some of those lessons that I've imparted through the teaching that I gave at the Naval Academy on the importance of morals, ethics, character development, those things, I, I think, are timeless lessons that every young man and woman needs to learn. That's very good. So as we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. And it's, you know, what do you like to do for fun? How do you relax? <laughs> I, I've, I've got a couple ways. I, a few years ago, I said, okay, whether you want to admit it or not, you may be getting on the back half of life. So let's pick the hobbies you want to do till the end. First thing I did is that when I retired, I actually went out and finally got my private pilot's license, my instrument ticket, and uh, I now fly an airplane and absolutely love doing that. Uh, another hobby that I picked up six years ago or re-engaged on, I should say, because I did it when I was uh, in command of coal but stopped afterwards, is I'm back into homebrewing beer. Oh, so nice. I've got a uh, three-kettle, 10-gallon setup. Uh, all the equipment that I get is through a, a wonderful friend of mine, John Blickman, who runs Blickman Engineering. And uh, so I'm very much plugged into the world of homebrewing and just love experimenting with the different flavors and everything. And, uh, you know, little travel. Just got back from 10 days in Ireland. So that was wonderful. Nice, nice. So what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Uh, best way is I do have a website. It's being redone right now, but it's very simple. It's like my name, kirklipold.com. So K-I-R-K-L-I-P-P-O-L-D.com. And uh, hopefully in the next couple months, you'll see that really get built out the way it should be. And uh, that's pretty much where they can follow where I am and what I'm doing. All right. All right. I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? Have faith in each other. Straight into the point. Love it. The book is Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole, available for purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Sir, this has been truly a great honor for me and to have you on the show. And from one sailor to another, thank you for your service. 
Derek, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much. It's been my true honor and pleasure to be on your show. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 177. I want to thank Commander LePole for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to come on the show and speak with me. After the interview was concluded, we got to spend 45 minutes swapping sea stories and just reminiscing about simpler times out on the ocean. What an incredible story and what an inspiring man, sir. Again, thank you for coming on the show and you are welcome back on here anytime. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for the episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode, especially this one? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. And also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening... Have you been following along with this Taylor Swift concert madness? I've been hearing stories of how much tickets for her shows are going for on Ticketmaster. They are more than my mortgage payment, and I live in a very nice house, folks. I get that it's a good show, but I just can't justify dropping that kind of money to see anyone. But hey, if you can, hey, it's your money. More power to you, man. No star, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.